Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Benjamin Ehrlich will join us to discuss the brain in search of itself. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, our understanding of the brain would be far less were it not for Santiago Ramon y Cajal, the grandfather of modern neuroscience. Well, joining us to discuss the life and times of Santiago Ramon y Cajal is Mr. Benjamin Ehrlich. Mr. Ehrlich has penned the new biography entitled The Brain in Search of Itself Santiago Ramon y Cajal and the Story of the Neuron. Mr. Ehrlich, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, it is certainly a fascinating biography you put together here about Ramon Cajal. Here's how you became interested in his story and how you decided to put the book together. Well, vulnerable time in my life when I was just out of college. I was depressed and looking for direction. And a friend of mine sent an email with a Wikipedia link to Cajal's page. And I saw his drawing of a brain cell. It was just a single brain cell. looked very lonely and bare. And something happened to me. I sort of had an awakening of a sort. And I decided I had to know who the man was behind the, the image. I thought it was almost triply fascinating because it was an aesthetic image in and of itself. And it also, of course, represented what actually exists in our brain. So it had an objective value. And then finally, because Cajal and his fellow neuroscientists and neuroscientists still today believe that the brain generates the mind, a representation of a neuron or a brain cell is akin to pulling back the curtain and showing the secrets of our humanity. So over many years, I went deeper and deeper into Cajal's life and work, reading more of his texts and moving from the English to the Spanish. And I always expected that someone would write a great biography of him. And year after year passed and nothing appeared. So I decided that I guess I would have to do it. And, um, you know, I was obviously an aspiring writer, wrote fiction and nonfiction and screenplays and things like that. But I really started this project as a sort of personal mission in addition to what I thought would be a good offering for people who, like me, didn't study brain science but were fascinated by the brain. Well, your other book on Cajal, uh, The Dreams of Santiago Ramoni Cajal, was first looking at Cajal's dream journals. Yeah, that book, Dreams of Santiago Ramoni Cajal, was sort of a precursor to my biography. And it's the biography that I always wanted to do. But I wanted to make a contribution to the scholarship because I had learned so much over the years and felt that I had something to offer. And I also felt that it would credential me in my quest to be taken seriously by trade publishers. So the book, The Dreams of Santiago Monica Hall, is half a translation of his dream diary, like you said, with, uh, with which he tried to disprove the theories of Freud, but kind of just ended up exposing himself and his insecurities in the process. And it also gave me a chance to write about 100 pages of a treatment of his life and work, which became the basis for the biography that's coming out now. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with Cajal, who he is, the things that he did, maybe you can sort of give a brief overview. Of... Yes, I mean, I, I trace it in the book back. There are a few lineages, let's say. And the first is, I think, anatomy. You know, the, the first curious 
natural philosophers, you might call them, of which Aristotle was one, who wanted to dissect the human body to discover the source of pain and suffering and our experience of life. And the brain was treated differently by different cultures and different thinkers. Some people thought the brain wasn't necessary. The Egyptians thought it wasn't necessary for the afterlife and kind of disposed of it in a, in a horrific and unceremonial way. But there are these people throughout history that you can, first with Hippocrates probably, who identified the brain as the source of the mind and the source of movement and thought and volition and whatnot. So Cajal really arrived at the peak of that tradition in concert with an advance in anatomy, which was called histology, which is treating dissected brain tissue with chemicals so that the hidden architecture would appear under the light of a microscope, often in vibrant color. So he applied those techniques to solve what was the greatest question in science at the time, which is the composition of the brain. There was a false theory at the time that the brain was a sort of singular network fused together fibers, rigid and immutable, called a reticulum. And Cajal, through patient and painstaking experimentation with these volatile chemical methods, was able to depict or represent or demonstrate that brain cells are independent. And that became the foundation of what's called the neuron doctrine. The term neuron was coined by another scientist. And that's the basis of our entire understanding of the brain today. You hear neurons discussed in from everywhere from popular culture, like soft drinks and over-the-counter pills to help you sleep and to help your intelligence and things like that, all the way to segments of academia like neuroeconomics and neurolaw. And so all of this is born out of Cajal's revelation of brain cells as independent and not touching each other, which means that they had to communicate across these infinitesimal gaps, which were later turned synapses. So all of that organization of the brain comes from some Cajal's discoveries. As you point out, he made these remarkable drawings of the brain, which still capture much of what we know about the brain today. Yeah, amazingly, if you consider how amazing it is that uh, over 100 years ago, the drawings, despite the imaging technology that we currently have, and, you know, PET scan and fMRI and rainbow clarity, all, all these advanced techniques with the technology that's advanced in the last 100 years or so, Cajal's drawings are still used in every neuroanatomy textbook. They're sort of epitomes of representations of neurons. And Cajal wanted to be an artist before finding science. As a child, I was obsessed with painting and drawing, and his father disapproved of that path as sort of delinquent and wasteful. He wanted Cajal to become a doctor, and he did eventually become a doctor, but he never stopped loving art. He initially came to anatomy in search of another thing to draw, basically. And so I believe it's, it's quite obvious from reading his life and work that a great part of the satisfaction of the process of discovery for him was the fact that he was encountering these forms that were so stimulating aesthetically, and especially to encounter them. And even though his main method was what's called the black reaction, which renders neurons in sort of stark ink-like color, the array of colors used in histology, I think, were attractive to him. And I think that his quote, one of my favorite quotes of his, is only two artists are attracted to science. And that was both a dig at his contemporaries that weren't as good at drawing as him and also a statement of purpose on his part. I mean, there really is sort of a stark beauty to those drawings. Yeah, absolutely. And, they've, you know, there was a, an exhibit that toured around and the Cajal Institute has archives and there was some, you know, they weren't as accessible for many years for various reasons. But in the last few years, there was an exhibit that traveled to about five cities in North America with 
his scientific drawings that went up in art museums. And I think it was very challenging for people in a good way to encounter art from a different domain. I've seen people with tattoos of, of them on their bodies. And so I think they're deeply meaningful for their iconic, first of all, for sure, in neuroscience. But they're also deeply meaningful to a lot of people whom Cajal inspired through neuroscience. I think Paxson and his way of seeing and his, his deep appreciation for the art of the brain gave reason for a lot of people who might not have wanted to study science to start. You sort of had an interesting childhood. Yeah, I mean, he it's amazing. Honestly. Truly one of a kind. He was born in an isolated mountaintop village in the most remote region of Spain in the north, in the north, in the Pyrenees. 90% of people in his area were illiterate. His father was a trained barber surgeon, like the medieval art, often depicted in 19th century novels as a sort of torturer. And he was abusive, and Caja had this desire to become an artist, and they clashed throughout his childhood. But his father was a remarkable person. He came from the same background and he walked 250 miles to go to college. And even when he lost his job, he refused to quit school. And, you know, he worked a full-time job around classes and until he could rise as far in the ranks of, as a physician as he could. So it's kind of a rags to riches story. Cajal was biased against what people, people were prejudiced against him, both for being Spanish on the global stage, but within Spain even, for having come from this region called Alto Aragon, which is kind of like, was like Hicksville, basically. It, it really is remarkable that he was not only able to leave Alto Aragon, which is where all of his family, his cousins, everybody stayed generation after generation, but that he won the Nobel Prize. And then there's a statue of him in Retiro Park, which is like the central park in Madrid. It's, it's truly a remarkable journey. It's a testament to his qualities as a person. He was unlucky in a lot of ways in his birth and, and lucky in other ways, but he made the road himself through sort of force of will and ingenuity and talent. That's a lot of what the book shows, and it's a remarkable example. What was the most surprising thing you discovered about Cajal's life? You know, when you write a biography, like, you spend a lot of time with someone. They become, he was kind of my teacher, I guess, I would say, in a profound way. You do it if you have to, but you would always prefer that your subject be a good person. You know, a lot of biographies, there are a lot of artists and politicians, you know, who were not morally sound. But my favorite thing about Kahala is that he never mistreated people of a lower station than him. He only caused problems in a sort of mischievous, childlike way to people that were aristocrats and of that class. And I just think that and also the way that he treated his chauffeur and janitor at the Institute and all of these people who he would buy them, help them fix their houses up and give them exorbitant tips and things like that. Waiters at cafes and stuff like that. He was also, while kind of conservative in, in his views on gender, like in keeping with the day, he was a, a major proponent of women's education and had women doing science in his lab and whom he championed, supported their publications and counted them publicly as members of the lab in ways that were not, in ways that were, you know, ahead of his time. So I, I think that he wasn't a good person and he certainly had his flaws, but if he, he wasn't a good person in a kind of overt way, it would have been fine because that's life and people are complicated. But I was sort of proud that he behaved in that way in those two cases. Do you think that part of that might be due to his more humble beginnings, that he had a certain affinity for that and always sort of punching up in a way, not demeaning those beneath him? Yeah, absolutely. And then I think that he, what his support for women's education shows is that he wanted to cultivate 
scientist in Spain. He cared a lot about, there wasn't a, a major scientific tradition, or at least at the time when Cajal came up, so he was kind of alone in his educating himself and practicing on his own. There were a few forerunners, but they were, it was sparse. And so Cajal was concerned with raising the Spanish, what he called the Spanish school. And so it's just a testament to the fact that if you were a woman, you were a man, if you could do science and you loved science and you cared and wanted to work, then, he, then there was a place for you. I think that sort of shows how, ser- how committed he was to his values. He had a very pointed disagreement with Golgi. Both won the Nobel Prize, but still with opposing views. How did that play out in this context? Well, Golgi was the poster poster person for the reticular theory, but it was shared. The view was shared by almost every scientist working at that time. So, in order to convince them, he had Kahala to pay his way to this conference in Berlin because no one would reply to his letters because. He was an anonymous researcher from Spain, which was kind of a a backwater. And so he prepared a demonstration and was able to corral the leading scientists. And they were convinced by looking at his illuminating, impeccable slides. But Golgi hung on for the longest. And, you know, they exchanged letters. And it's just the case of two egos. You know, it's like they had more in common. Golgi was also from a small town in in Italy and was shy. And and so... They had more in common, but they were protecting what they perceived to be their legacies. Golgi was awarded the Nobel Prize for his stain and not for his views. I think the committee recognized that he was wrong about his views, whereas Cajal proved to be right. They were at the same Nobel Prize ceremony. It's like one of my favorite parts of the book because there's a bit of tension and you wonder how they're going to interact. And they, they basically didn't interact at all, but they used their speeches to combat each other in a way that was not in keeping with the usual decorum of the, the Nobel Prize. So Cajal tried to control himself a little bit, but you know, he was quite a prideful person. It's a rare example of one person being wrong and one person being right in a clear way. But, you know, Golgi's kind of a stretch, but some people say that his views are at least viable again because of the way that the scientists now look at the brain as typically comprised of networks, not physically continuous networks like Golgi thought, but different populations of neurons around the brain um, working together to create a type of behavior or something like that. But for the most part, I think it's an appealing scientific view because there's one clearly right person and one clearly wrong person. Almost a story, and it's to be focused on in itself. There, yeah, definitely. It's it's a it's one of the best parts of the story of his life. I think that it illuminates an aspect of of our humanity, which is to say that we are trying to protect our ego, even when we have a noble aspiration. Like both both Golgi and Cajal didn't get into it. I mean, they got in they got into science because they wanted to make discoveries, and obviously they wanted they should make the discoveries and not someone else. But ultimately, it's interesting to see how that more noble aspiration, that more kind of personal defense, those personal defense mechanisms can can both be present at the same time and lead to some interesting interactions. So what was Cajal's life after the Nobel? What do you think of his legacy now, you know, some hundred years later? Well, after the Nobel, he did some important work on the regeneration and degeneration of neurons. It was kind of like the second big phase of his career after the anatomy of, of the brain and discovering neurons. World War One took a lot out of him, as it did a lot of his peers. He, he had a propensity for depression and, and debilitating migraines also. And so he kind of slowly retreated over time to his country house that he was able to buy with money from the Nobel. His legacy was as a teacher, he continued to, to work. But in the 1920s, and as he got into his 60s and 70s, he mainly stewarded the careers of his students 
Primo de Rivera, who was the dictator, sort of often forgotten about because of Franco later, Primo de Rivera held Cajal up as this kind of paragon of patriotism, and he avoided that distinction because he, he understood the... While he didn't sort of burn Primo de Rivera, neither did he welcome the, the attention and praise because I think he knew what Primo was all about. There was, there's a, like I said, a statue of him in Rutsuva Park. The street named after him in, in nearly every Spanish city. And he's truly one of the, the great Spaniards of history. I mean, in Spain, they exalt the philosophers, artists, writers, kings, and, and not so much scientists. So he was kind of working against the established culture. Now, the reason I wrote the book is because I was shocked. I, I didn't know about him. You know, I studied comparative literature, not science, but still, there's, I mean, I know who Einstein is, and I, you know, I know who Darwin is, and Cajal belongs there in terms of his legacy. It's abundantly clear. Within neuroscience, he's a hero and a legend. Everybody knows his name. And in Spain, everybody knows his name, but mostly because they learn about him as a child, I think, and not for any intimacy with his discoveries or his character. I think he deserves the, the type of treatment that hopefully I, I gave him in my book because he was a remarkable person and his contributions to humanity are fascinating and, and will endure. My hope is that people will, will, will know his name, like his single name, the way that we Einstein and Darwin. Maybe to close, if you have any final words regarding your book or the life of Santiago Ramón y Cajal. I would just encourage people, if, if you're interested at all in the brain or have been interested in the brain, like I said, there's, you know, we have the decade of the brain and previously in America, and, and the brain gets a, gets a lot of attention. It, it was interesting for me to find out what's behind the major discoveries and what and how we came to view the brain the way that we do. And it, it does filter down into a lot of areas of thought and, and ways of life. So if you're interested in the brain at all, or you're interested in a fascinating story of a human being's remarkable life, you might enjoy the book. And I hope that you maybe even get in touch at my uh, website and let me know what you think about it. We were just talking with Mr. Benjamin Ehrlich. He's the author of the new book, The Brain in Search of Itself, Santiago Ramon y Cajal and the Story of the Neuron. Mr. Ehrlich, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.